Okay, I'm going to introduce this morning a series that uh, we'll be doing on the book of James. Now, I am doing four sessions on it, and initially when we talked about this, we thought we would do a session on each chapter, and when I got into it, I mean, I love the book, but when I got into it, I just thought, oh, there's too much wealth to do that. So between now and whenever, we're going to do the whole book. But over the next four weeks, I'm just doing chapter one. And so that's, that's where we're going. So the, the question is, why are we doing the book of James? So all, what I'm going to do, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that and some background. Then I will introduce the book for you. Then we'll get right into the, the beginning of it next week. So... One of the things that, and as you know, I travel a lot and go around a lot of different churches, both in, in the Western and Eastern world and a variety of different places. But I'm convinced one of the failings in, our, in the Western world anyway, at the present time, it has been the failure to see mature Christians grow up. Plenty of people that love the Lord, but just the failure to see mature Christians uh, be produced. And a lot of this criticism is leveled at the church, that the church doesn't produce mature Christians anymore. And as somebody very involved in church and church leadership, I accept some of that criticism. I accept that there is, it's valid, but it's also got to be leveled at the failing of the individual. Because each believer has a responsibility to mature. Each of us needs to take that on. And so it says in the well-known verse 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So it's made clear here that it's our responsibility to present ourselves before God as a workman. This is not about salvation, you know that. That is a free gift in Christ. But once we have come to know Jesus, we are charged with the responsibility to mature in him. And it's our responsibility to do that. And no one else, including Jesus, of course the Holy Spirit assists us to do that and will empower us to do that, but no one else, including Jesus, will do that for us. So we're expected to go into training from the day that we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Training day has started and it continues forever. We are meant to be changed from one degree of glory to another. Be excited for where you are today. Be excited to the degree of revelation and understanding of who God is and his plan and his purposes for the whole of life for eternity as well as for you. Be excited to what you have because the scripture says the understanding you have of that is part of your true wealth. So be excited for it, but don't stop there. We are meant to be transformed from one degree of glory where to another. It's so important that we do this. And one of the downsides in the 21st century 
is that people seem to be reluctant to do that. There's a desire out there to get all the benefits that Jesus has to offer without paying any of the costs. And it's not only in Christianity, it's in life itself. And so here's the choice of us. And I've got a few questions I'm going to ask as I share this morning that I hope you'll go home and wrestle with. But the choice for each of us is as Christians, are we going to be believers or disciples? Each of you is charged for that. You will stand before God. And again, this is not about salvation. And I'm going to cover the scripture in a minute. You will stand before God at the end of this age, at the end of your lifetime, when Jesus returns, whatever works first. And he is going to say, were you a believer or a disciple? And he's going to show the difference. What is the difference? Just basically this. A disciple turns up for training every day and allows the Holy Spirit to take him or her to a greater place of maturity. That's the difference. A believer is somebody who believes in Jesus. See, our salvation is not dependent upon this choice, but our maturity, our fruitfulness and our effective and our effectiveness in the kingdom of God is, and by the way, And this is the key. So are the rewards we are going to receive for eternity. Are all dependent. Once we cross the bridge of salvation through knowing Jesus, we're now in the rewards system. And the reward system we get is specified in the Bible. So here we go. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, which means it survives the fire, which is just the testing place of God, He shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. So it's not about salvation, it's about work and rewards, yet so as through fire. Now this passage is important because it's one of the few places in Scripture that we are given a glimpse of how the reward system works in the body of Christ. bring it back to here on this earth. 2 Corinthians 16, 9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Today, right now, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So like in any other form of life, we cannot excel in our Christian faith unless we are prepared to work hard. The Bible's a tough book to read. I have spent a lot of my life reading and studying it. It is hard work. It really is. God intended it to be so. 
He could have written it a lot easier and a lot more simple for simple-minded people like myself. But it's a tough book because God wanted us to get in the gym and wrestle and struggle with scriptures. Here's the other thing why God made it tough, because as an individual, we can only get one part of revelation. We've got to get in community and hear the perspectives of brothers and sisters in Christ to get a bigger picture of what it means and how it works. We can't do it on our own. That's why it says where two or three are together, there is Christ in in the midst. I can't think like a mother. God bless mums. I can't think like a mother, but I can engage Christ in any mother by spending time with her. And this whole thing becomes important. Now, any serious athlete or sports person is able to clearly describe their training routine. So I should, have, I should be able to come to any one of you who truly knows Jesus and is in this walk and this journey with us, tell me about your training routine. If you went to an athlete, a marathon runner or a javelin thrower or a high jumper, and you said, tell me about your training routine, they could sit you down and talk for hours probably about how they train, why they train, how it's changed over a period of time, how they've accommodated their changes and their life and their circumstances. They would have that story to tell. So should we. So should every one of us. I had been a Christian, I think, for about a year, maybe a bit more, and I was way up on top of the Carwicker Ranges in one of my famous little huts up there. It's called Makino Hut. I was up there on my own for about seven or eight days, and I had a little transistor with me that could only get one station, which is the national station on it, and they did an interview while I was sitting in this hut in front of the fire. It was so lovely. They did an interview of Ivan Major. Now, I'm not a great dirt bike, dirt track rider or whatever they call it. Um, many of you probably don't know who Ivan Major is. So Ivan Major won six world championships in dirt boat riding in England. And um, he left there at 17 and he got a flat by the racetrack. And so he was working through the day at a grocery store, a supermarket or something, getting a living. But his whole passion was to be a top dirt bike rider. So he got a flat next to the racetrack and he went down to them at the racetrack and he said, hey, I'll do a deal with you. This place is always dirty and untidy and after every race is rubbish thrown around. He said, if you let me come down here every morning at 5 a.m. before work and practice, I'll keep this place spotless for you. And they said, deal. So he got free use of the track, but he had to get up at every morning at five o'clock. He got free use of the track and he would practice and practice and practice and keep the track clean. And he became, he won his first world title and then he won the next three. So he had won four. He went into a longer race of dirt bike riding and he won that. So then he retired for two years. And then they said to him, ah, you know, you were a great rider, Ivan. But they said, bikes have changed, training's changed, everything's trained. Boy, it's a lot tougher today. And he said, really? And so he came back, and by then he had money. He didn't have to get up at 5 a.m. But he came back and won another two titles. 
and then said, I think I've proved my point. He's still alive today. I read a good article about him in the paper the other day. Anyway, here's my point. I'm sitting in a Makino hut listening to this, and I'm a brand new Christian, and I don't know the Bible. We're having these meetings, and people would say, turn to Corinthians, and I would turn to the index to try and find where Corinthians was. By the time I'd found it, the preacher was now in Hebrew, so I was back to the... and it, I could never keep up with anything. So I thought, this is shameful. I'm a Christian. I don't know anything about the Word of God. I'd had no Christian upbringing or background. And here's Ivan Major doing this, so I'm going to do the same thing. Now, I'm not saying this to pat me on the back, but I was running a serv- my own business, a service station in those times, and I had, to pl- had the place open at 6 o'clock every morning. So I thought, okay, I am going to get up an hour and a half earlier, which was 4.30, so each morning, in the quiet of the morning, I can get spend some time before the Lord. So I did that for six days a week for 10 years. And guys, it was tough. There was plenty of times in the morning when the alarm would go off and I just wanted to stay in bed. And off, you know, you get up in the winter and the house is cold. I'm the first one to light the fire and all that. But I stuck to it. My whole thing was if Ivan Major can make that sacrifice to get ahead to where he wants to go, how much more should we do? Now, I'm not asking any of you to do all of that. I did it for 10 years after then I had a bit more free time so I didn't have to get up uh, that hour of the morning and I stopped immediately. And you want to you hear me grumble and complain if I have to get up early these days. But the fact is this. Today we live in a Western world at a time where the Bible was being translated at length, commented on, preached on and analysed as never before, yet it is a time when it's actually been read less by Christians, they believe, than in the last 2,000 years. I spent no small fortune on books and commentaries and things in my study, and it took me years and years, 20 years, to build up the library I wanted. Do you know that same library is available free to anybody who can get on the internet? All the books, all the commentaries, all the stuff that I've got which I treasure, I can access them free. So can you as long as I've got my computer plugged into the internet. I feel a bit ripped off because uh, I, you try and sell them these days. I thought I was building up an inheritance for my kids. And my kids are saying to me, Dad, we carry all that around in our iPad. So why are you going to have shelves and, and everything that goes with it? But listen... We've got opportunities that generations before us would have given their life to have. And what are we doing? We're not using them because we don't understand what it is and the requirement that is to get into training to transform from being a believer to a disciple so we become come useful in God, lay hold of the purposes that he has for us and uncover the rewards and the treasures according to Galatians 4 that he has set aside for only you. No one else can get them. And when we get before God at the end of our life, he's going to show us what we uncovered and what was left hidden. So in Galatians 4, 1 to 7, explains that very clearly. See, here's the tragedy 
our lack of getting into the word of God, our lack of fronting up, we're coming to James, believe me, has produced immature Christians who don't know what God requires of them and don't understand how he has empowered them. And as a result, they are not aligned to his purposes for humanity or discovering who they, we, really are as a person. There is only one way we can find who we really are as a person and that is that we find and discover it in Jesus Christ and meeting him is the beginning of it and the rest of our life is his plan to unfold that so we can find out who we really are, what God really has for us, how we engage in it with him and then the whole true joy of Christian life comes upon us. So do the challenges and the sufferings and all those things. And James talks a lot about that, and we're going to do the same. Nothing static in the kingdom of God. We're called on and on and on. See, the other problem is, and this is major, it means who Christ is. And how he would have us live, which is termed the way of the Lord, remains a mystery rather than a light on a hill. And there's very little of it in the earth, at least in the Western world. See, the question I'm asking so many people today, so here's another question for you. Are you faithful to Jesus Christ himself Or are you faithful to an idea of him that you and your friends want to have? Is your life defined by the Christ of the Bible? Or is it by watered down versions of a God that is meant to conform to our every whim? See, the question that Jesus asked his disciples is today, A major, major question. And the Holy Spirit is asking every one of you and is asking me that question today. And the question is this, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? The trouble is we've got all this answers about God wouldn't do this, God wouldn't do that. This isn't what Jesus wants. This isn't what Jesus is here. And when we truly discover who the God of the Bible is, he is not a nice guy. He's loving and he's kind and he's generous and he's compassionate and he's exacting and he is demanding and he is ruthless on where our heart lies ruthless on that and he has some very strong things and some strong statements to make now praise God that Jesus took the curse upon himself at Calvary and that protects and shields a whole lot of things that would have come at us if it wasn't for the fact that we're in Christ. But if we think that's made God some mamby-pamby, gift-bearing deity in the sky, that is not the God of the Scriptures, either the Old Testament or the New. Now, God does love us. 
despite what we do. But God is exacting and demanding on how he expects us to live. And we need to understand that. And we need to stop apologizing about it. And we need to get away from people's idea of the deity they have built in their minds and their hearts and talk about claiming it's Jesus Christ and get back to the scriptures and find out who Jesus Christ really is and put ourselves in his yoke. We need to do that. Should that now make us all fearful? No, we should be fearful to be anywhere else but there. And he's paid a huge price to get us here. The book of James' central premise is that the gospel summons sinners to yield to Christ's authority. There is the central premise of the book of James. The gospel summons sinners to yield to Christ's authority. James teaches that the single fact that distinguishes counterfeit faith from the real thing is the righteous behavior that is inevitably produced in those who have authentic faith. And if you say, well, look, that's, I can't overcome my sin. I can't overcome my shortcoming. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows that. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit. That's one of the roles that he is there for. And that excuse won't get us out of or away from the demands God has in the way we live our life because he said, not only did I pay for all your sins, I sent you the power to live above a sinful life. He provided it. It's there for us in Jesus Christ. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a free gift. But we have to roll our sleeves and dig in and get to know him and cooperate with him and work with him. And that is not an easy journey. Ask anybody around you who's been walking with the Lord for a few years and there's plenty of people in this room that can be a testimony to that. Okay, let's have a look at some things about the book of James. And I hope some of you will turn up again next week to get into it all. James was not a profound theologian. His genius lies in his moral earnestness. His words need to penetrate through our theological discussions and our personal preconceptions because James has this ability to cut right to this stuff and then go to the heart of what God is saying. Amazing book for doing that. And I hope that as we get through the next few sessions, just in chapter one, it'll help all of us stay on the road to a biblical, invigorating and transforming Christianity. It's always been of great interest to me that the book of James was never accepted into the canon and the canon is what has been accepted as the anointed holy books of the Bible. James was never accepted. It was the last book accepted and it was it was towards the end of the fourth century and the reason why all the theologians and the church fathers and all those people wrestled with James is because they felt he was working contrary to the apostle Paul because the apostle Paul was saying we are justified by faith not by works 
And James was interpreted as saying, if you don't have works, you're not saved. And it took 400 years to work that out. What the difference was, and finally the penny dropped. And by the way, guys, we get the benefit of all those years of meetings, of prayer, of, of various persecutions even that came up around these topics. We've got the benefit of all this laid out. I didn't have any wrestle with the book of James for years until I found out why people were wrestling with it, why they wrestled with it way back then. And then I started to think, oh, yeah, now there are some good points there, but all those points have been answered. We have it all for nothing available to us. So the issue was that they were worried about that. But then finally the revelation came that there was nothing inconsistent between Jesus and between the expectation that Christianity is a way of life that reveals clear evidence and fruit of what has been embraced and taken in. Let me try and say that to you in another way. What James is stating is Christianity is not a religion. It's not a belief system. It's a way of life. And the way of life must be demonstrated. And the way you can find out if somebody is a true believer, you will see the way of life coming out of their very existence. And James is nailing that home and saying... You want to show me your faith by your belief system? No, show it to me by your works. Show it to me by your marriage, by your parenting, by whether you're a good employer or whether you're a good employee or whether you're a good student or whether you're a good neighbour. And we can go right through the list. James is saying, if it's true Christianity, it manifests itself through your everyday life. And he's saying, if it doesn't, I'm not interested in it. And it actually says that. And we'll look at that when we start to uncover it. James 2.18. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works, by my way of life. So the essence of James is simply this. Any form of Christianity that does not put actions to its words is not true Christianity at all. Now, guys, that can't be a condemning statement because knowledge doesn't cut it anymore. Everything you ever want to know, you can get on the internet. Do you know what the most used what iPhones and iPads probably now are the most used for. They've done all the surveys for people having a discussion. So Peter and I can have a discussion and I can say to Peter, who won something or other in the 1940 Olympics? And Peter will say, hang on a minute, whip out his iPhone and give me the answer. Can take all of three minutes. See, so if you want to make a lot of money, I'm going to put you onto a secret. Go into all these quizzes and places where they have big prizes and just hide the iPhone. And then as they ask the questions, you can look it up by just, and you know, even as you start typing the word, it's predictive texting, you know, so the word, you can do it very, very quickly. And you'll clean out all the top brains of the world. You'll beat a lot of them. 
all you have to do is be able to get away with it. No, sorry, I'm not meant to be doing that on a Sunday morning when I'm preaching. Sorry, that was a joke. Sometimes you've got to add that, otherwise people pick up the messages from overseas somewhere. And So that was a joke, okay. But what I am saying is this, which is not a joke. Every bit of information we ever want is available to us on the internet. What people need is a demonstration, guys. If we're going to talk about Christianity, you can get as many commentaries and Bibles and translations on the internet as you like, and so can they. But when there is a demonstration of that faith, that's what nobody can argue with. Mentioned this before. James will help you a lot. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it. You have people like... Jehovah's Witness and Mormons come to your door. Open up the door. Now, remember what I've said before. They work off the power of the question. Whoever is asking the questions holds the power. See that on TV. That's why you can't ask an interviewer questions when you're on TV. The interviewer said, what were you doing yesterday? And you say, tell me what you're doing. They say, no, I'm running this interview. You're not allowed to ask interviewers questions. Watch any political program, anything at all, and watch the interviewers. You're not allowed to ask them questions. Why? Because whoever holds the question holds the power. Now, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are trained never to let you take the question. Now, I understand that. So when they come to my door, I ask them the question, hey, you guys, and they start saying to me, I say, hey, tell me what Jesus has done in your life over the last couple of days. What's he been saying to you? What miracles are happening? Start firing them the questions. They won't answer it. But here's the tragedy. They don't have that testimony, and you and I do. I've had them leave my place crying. I'm serious. They don't come now. I have to chase them down the street. They're not allowed in. I'm I'm serious. I'm not joking. I'm serious. I say, what about me? As one walked past, I was out doing the yard, and they walked past two of them. I said, what about me? Look at me. And I was covered in gun. I said, I need salvation. Oh, we're not allowed to come in here. So I walked up the street a couple of steps with them and stood there and had the conversation. Do you guys, I love people who love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? They say, of course we do. Great. Tell me what has he been doing in your life lately? And then I blurt out my stories. See, this thing called Christianity, guys, has got to be demonstrable, if that's a word, I think. Is that a word, Linda? Yeah, it is. Linda said, Linda helps me with my English. It's got to be demonstrable in our lives for it to be authentic and of any value. And there's power in it. There can't help but be power in it. There's power in the spoken word when it's anointed by the Holy Spirit. And what does Jesus say? To all of you who testify my name before men, I will testify yours before God. There's power in it, guys. Okay, let's move on. We're nearly finished. Uh, The author, I don't want to go into depth of all of this stuff, so I'm just going to do it very briefly with you now. There was three or four very well-known people with the name of James from Christ's time, but it is genuinely agreed that the author is the Lord's brother, James, who grew up 
with Jesus. And so most theologians and people accept that. If, you're going to, if you like going through books systematically, which I do, forget it with James, it doesn't work. He's all over the place. And he starts somewhere, breaks off, deals with something else, then comes back to it in a chapter later, and he goes from topic to topic. Sometimes they're connected together. Sometimes you think, well, how come? Hang on. They just stop somewhere and start somewhere else. It's a lot of fun. I'm going to do the same thing. Because, yeah, let, let's, let's get into it and see how it is. Sorry, Rachel. It'll, it'll leave you with some homework to do, but that's a good thing. So we're going to follow the, the same thing. Um, the audience James was writing to, it seems the audience was very wide. No one specific church, no one group of uh, believers. Uh, and it, but it's certain that all his readers were Jews because he's using a lot of spirit and imagery stuff of the Old Testament Judaism, which um, Gentiles wouldn't know. And so we assume he's writing to Jews. Certainly they have faced difficulties and persecution at the time. So he's got a wide audience in different places, it seems. He's the Lord's brother, but the people he's writing to are all Jewish believers. Uh, It's believed it was written around about the mid-40s. So uh, the purpose James is going after, and that's what I'm going to be going after, and that's where I started on today. He's going after topics that either contribute to or threaten the integrity of his reader's faith. He's concerned that as believers we progress to a mature, stable faith, and that's in there in verse 4. And to do so, we need to maintain a distinctively Christian attitude towards stumbling blocks, difficulties, and failures in our life. And the book is evidence that genuine faith transforms lives, which I've been talking about this morning. It encourages us to put our faith into action. It's easy to say we have faith, but true faith will produce loving actions towards others. So what are we going to expect over the next few weeks? Well, we're going to do things like this. We're going to look at trials and tribulations. Now, we start next week. Don't miss this, guys. Be here. Because if you are able to see, and if I, with the help of God, are able to communicate, trials and temptations are two very different things, and if we apply the wrong mechanism to the wrong one, we get the wrong end results. So right in, as we get into James, he starts talking about trials, tribulations, temptations, and they're different. Next week, I'm going to wrestle with why they are different, how they are different, and what we apply to each one so we can get the most out of you. And I promise you, that learning this difference will empower your walk with God. I promise you it will. And that's not suggesting you don't already know this and do it. But it's helped me tremendously over all the years that I've walked with the Lord. We're going to look realistically at what faith really is. I've preached on it before here. But the whole issue of faith is a major stumbling block to Christians. What it is, what it isn't, how we get it, how we don't, what it produces, what it doesn't. It's a major stumbling block. 
James clarifies this, and we're going to work with this uh, a lot also uh, in the, the, three, the three more lessons to come. And finally, we're going to look at wisdom. We're going to see how generously it is being given to us as a resource for life and how we can tap into it. I love the comment, and I'm finishing right here, guys, that what is the beginning of wisdom? Fear of the Lord. Therefore, who are the people that should have access to the greatest wisdom on this earth? Those who fear the Lord. That's us, guys. That's the work. I'm not saying you're going to unravel all the great scientific or astronomical or whatever issues, but more power to us if as the body of Christ we did. So I'm not belittling that. But James is about accessing the wisdom of God and it applying it to our everyday life so it brings the glory of God into us and through us and round about us and at least it puts life into harmony with who Jesus is and then it starts to make a whole lot more sense than it makes if we don't know these things. So that's what we're going to be doing. That's what we're going to be working with. So I hope this morning was challenging to you and I hope you come along over the next few weeks and we'll just see what this uh, wonderful man under the anointing of the Holy Spirit has granted to us in the book of James. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that salvation was a free gift and there is nothing anybody ever did to earn it or deserve it. But Lord, we just thank you also that that's a doorway into a way of life that you don't only call us into, but you demand from us. Father, we want to lay hold of that. And the power of the Holy Spirit, we want to grow in that. We do want to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. As we go about our day today, as we explore what James has written and left to us, Lord, we just ask that you take it and build it into our lives in the way that it can be expressed in a way that brings glory to your name, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Bruce.